Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, those of you here in the church studio and uh, those of you who are with us at home or who will watch on the archives. Last week I said was the most important message I have ever given. And uh, this week uh, is uh, the necessary follow-up to last week. So by association, it makes it almost as vital. And, uh, and so that's almost by design, I think. If you haven't been with us before, we begin with a word of prayer. We sing the word of God set to music, and then we'll come uh, after we sit in, then we'll sit in silence, and then we'll come back and get in our verse by verse. All right, let's uh, pray. Father, we uh, pause and uh, turn our time and attention and thoughts, our hearts. We seek the Spirit to turn it over to you, to let you reign over our minds, wills, and emotions. We pray that we will be able to comprehend better what you have done for us in your love, sending your Son, sending your Spirit, helping us walk through this life. And we just pray that you'll equip us now by your Word and by the Spirit as we study, that we'll understand better how you want us to be in preparation for our eternal lives with you there and here. So be with those who uh, are struggling, and struggling particularly at this point with the uh, with faith, and uh, let this be a benefit to them. And uh, we just turn the rest of this time over to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. For the message of the cross is foolishness to the But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Add one of those. <laughs> okay, so we left off last week, Paul describing spiritual gifts that were in operation at the same time uh, as the apostolic church was underway there. We're reading the record of it. And he tells believers in Corinth that he was writing uh, to, he says, covet the best gifts. He says that we've talked all about them and we covered them a couple weeks ago. And he says, but let me show you a more excellent way. And we are immediately introduced to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, which is known all over the world as the chapter on Christian love. And I, why do I say Christian love? The chapter on Christian love. And perhaps we should um, read the first verse and we'll kind of move into it. He says, I've talked to you about all the spiritual gifts. And then he says, and yet I show you a, a more excellent way, though... Because there's, no there's no breaks here. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not King James writes charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In other words, referencing all the spiritual gifts mentioned in chapter 12, Paul now says, I want to show you the more excellent way. And it is so much more excellent that even if I speak with the tongue of men and angels and I don't have this more excellent way, all of my tongue speaking 
will be nothing but sounding brass. And he says tinkling cymbals. We'll talk about that. The first thing I want to focus on here is the word translated charity in the King James, if you're a King James onlyist. In other versions, uh, in the apostolic record, it's all love. It says love. Uh, but even in our day and age, we are presented with some real difficulty because, I mean, the Beatles say all you need is love. And you can walk around all over the place and people will tell you about you just need to love, right? And so we generally agree that love is nice and it's friendly and it's kind and such. The word from the Greek cannot be totally understood through those words. Um, so let's talk about love first, and I've written some words on the board, and the many ways in which the word love is used in the apostolic record. Now, before we started, Derek was pointing out that there's a few that I haven't mentioned up here, because I didn't write the words where it's not translated to love or charity. Now, there are words that sound like love, that are described in the, in the record. There are words that describe love that are used, but they, they aren't translated to love in the record. And so because of that, I have excluded those. And I've even included one in this list that's debatable. Some people say there's only four Greek words that really are talking about the kind of love. I think there are five but other people think there are six or seven. I mean, it just depends on how you're going to look at it. Like everything, there's a debate, right? So I am giving you five words that I think are translated consistently in the Scripture as love, the New Testament. So on the board, agapeo, agape, phileo, Philadelphia, uh, telo, love, eros, love, and storge, love, Okay. And uh, it's really storge, but it's pronounced storge, and so it's kind of a weird-looking word on the board. So let's work backward on these. Let's start with storge. It's only used once in the entire Bible. That's Romans chapter 12, verses 10. And there it's used as a compound word. So it just doesn't say storge there, or storge. Uh, it's, it's when Paul says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another, the phrase be kindly affectioned to one another is philostorgos. And so it's that storgos, storge, attached to philos, is the only place where storge, love, is, is mentioned in the record. But from its presence, we get the notion that it is a type of love and uh, that the apostles suggested existed among believers. And it's best represented as the love that, and uh, I'll just put, well, I'm not going to mark it, a parent has for a child. The love a parent has for a child. That, from what I've been able to tell, is probably the best way to understand storge love. All right? Um, it's close to agape love, but it's not the same because even that love, storge love, is inferior to agape love. It is inferior to it. The next one I think on the board is eros. And we know from that we get erotic love. And it is never used in the Bible. 
erotic love. It's, well, it's not used in the New Testament. Uh, it's referenced to in the Old Testament in books like Song of Solomon. Uh, so, but uh, in discussing the love a husband has to his wife, when Paul says, husbands, love your wife, it's not eros. It's not philos. It's not even storge. It's not storge. It's, it's not telos. It's uh, thelo. I mean, it's agapeo. So even the love that a husband is to have for his wife is agape. It's not eros in the way that we would normally attach erotic love as Christians. Uh, well beyond the meaning of erotic love. So, of course, we do find expressions of erotic love. And we can say sort of, I think, that it is based in biology. Sort of. I think erotic love includes some agape love. And I think that there's a kind of a crossover in there. I wonder if Eros love existed in the Garden of Eden. We don't have evidence of it, but I'm personally inclined to think it did because, one, God created Adam and Eve and it was good. And he tells them to multiply and replenish the earth. And then what else would cause Adam to disobey God, who he had a relationship with, than uh, going, I mean, rebelling against him? than uh, some sort of eroticism for old Eve. You know, I, I, I can only think that would be the reason why Adam would say, God, you always love me. Eve? Yeah, I'm going with this one, you know. So I can't prove it, but that's just, you know, you get what you pay for around here. So tremendously potent and persuasive in this world. I tend to think of eros love, and I would explain it this way. I would take the word eros and I would expand it and call it erosion love. Eros love, I would just say, well, you call it eros love, I want to call it erosion love. And the reason is because usually, typically, between human beings, eros love is diminished, it diminishes. And it is replaced, hopefully, with storge love or philos love or agape love. So eros love is kind of the hook, traps us a little bit, and it gets the propagation of the species, so to speak but it diminishes, and so I think it erodes over time, and so I disassociate eros love with erosive love. And, uh, um, but it does seem to include some elements of the others. Telo, uh, thelo, telo love is not frequently mentioned by scholars as being a form of love in Scripture, and this is where I kind of extend it out a little bit beyond but I see it as a form of love that's used in Scripture. One, because it is described as love in Scripture, and it means want or desire. It's close to eros love, but it is typically toward a thing. It's not a, it's not a personal thing. So telos love is used 200 times in the apostolic record, and it means to prefer or to have a desire for. And it's usually, uh, it's probably in the carnal world more associated with lust. We think of eros love as lust. And it might, eros love might include lust, but hello love in the sense of using it in a love language is more of a desire. It really is more of a carnal. And that's why it's, uh, it can be included sort of in the, in the terms of godly love because God desires and so we can say that it has a place in that. Uh, 
It probably best is applied to things though. So when I say I tellos, uh, fellows, uh, tacos, it's true. I desire them. Okay. Now when I desire tacos, if I desire my wife in the same way, you know, do I desire my children in the same way? No. You know, do I desire God in the same way? You know, you start to get a little mixed up in all this, but usually it's toward an object, okay? Um, of course, the very next term is huge, and that is Vallejo. It's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and it is the love, very important love, that you have between fellow human beings. It's friendship, per, probably the best way to say it. And this form of love was used by Jesus when he says to Peter, uh, do you love me? Yes. First time it's agapeo. Second time it's phileo. Third time it's phileo. So he says, do you love me with agape love? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Do you, do you love me? Second time's phileo. I mean, are you my friend? Do you love me as a brother, as a friend? And so really important type of love in this world um, that we have. And while beautiful and good and closely underwritten by agape love, neither phileo or telo or storge or eros uh, is used in the Greek. In the Greek is used here by Paul. None of those other words. The agape is the only word, excuse me, that Paul uses here when describing this love that God is. Understand that. Start off with that. It's always and only agape. Okay, so, uh, and that, let's talk about that. That's the love, agape, agapeo, that God is. Not that he has, that God is. And he operates in and by this completely because that's what he is. Love and light, those things. So there's been a lot written on this kind of love, uh, but... All the writings kind of boil down from what I can see and from what I believe to about six common things. And I've created these six things myself, challenge them, test them. I believe I've done a lot of study over the years on love, on Christian love, on agape love relative to what scripture says. And so um, there are some rules to it and that's what those six things are. And so I'm going to list those out at the end. Uh, first rule is that agape love is always founded on the good will of the other. It's you have good will for another being, God or man. And uh, you, there is no ill will at all in agape love. Secondly, by definition almost, having said that, Agape love is never self-serving. It does not serve the self. Um, it does what is best in terms of the goodwill for the other person. And so uh, over what we desire for our own self-interests, agape love does what is necessary for the others involved. Always puts the other's interest first. That's why it's closely related to sorge love, because a mother 
will put the interests of her family above her own typically because of that story gay love. So there's intertwining of these facets, but agape love will always put the other, God or others, ahead of themselves. So I may desire my neighbor's wife, to give you an example, but if I am operating in agape love, uh, I would never try to take her. And uh, that's not goodwill. That's not self-abasing. That's not putting her and her interests first with her, she and her husband and she and her kids first. It's not putting my wife and my family first. It's not putting God first. It's putting me first. And so you know that when you have this kind of attraction, even if you say it's love, I really love my neighbor's wife. That kind of love could not be called godly love because one, it's not of goodwill. And two, it is not self-serving. I mean, it is self-serving. It's not self-effacing. And so you can start to see how godly love really does tease apart separately from all the other types of love that we will use in our language today. Uh, Thirdly, agape love appears contextually to always, listen to this, you can challenge it, I believe this, godly love is always an act of the human will. Now, in God, it's an act, it's just him. But to us, Agape love is an act of the will. Um, and there's a, several reasons why I say this. It's an act that people choose to do um, when confronted with a situation or the presence of others. It's a choice. By this, my fourth point is it is a verb. That's why I said those words emphatically. It is an act that people choose to do. Okay? It's an act. It's a verb. And it's a choice. It is not, by saying that, uh, uh, an action against goodwill. It's not an action against uh, a selflessness. Uh, it is an act of beneficial good toward another person or persons or things or whatever that you choose to do and it's based in the goodwill of the other. So uh, where philo love might sometimes involve choice, sometimes, eros love, storge love, even telos desire is often self-sustaining. It's all, often not a matter of choice. It's just there. If choice is involved, you're stepping into the realm of agape love when you're dealing with people. When, when you choose to love them in the ways I've described so far, with goodwill and not with self-interest. That is when agape love separates. If you are involved with somebody in uh, brotherly love or eros love or family love or telos love, uh, you automatically have those feelings that the Beatles sung about. And that you can find in Sugar House and San Francisco and, and places. That it's this kind of free-flowing love that it's just great to be involved with it, baby, right? You feel that way. Agapeo love is not a feeling. And that's why I describe it as a choice of the will. 
It is not a feeling. It's more intellectual, but paradoxically, it's intellectually driven based on compassion and mercy. But we'll talk about that in a second. So agape love will always choose the beneficial, the well-being, the good of the other over any other option or driver. This is why philos love in our world is inferior. Philos love is an inferior form of love to agape love. I don't want my friend to go to jail, but if I really love him and for his benefit and for his interests, going to jail will help him kick heroin or going to jail will help him make reparations for in the bank, I will send him to jail. I will let my agape love ride over my philos or eros or storge love and I will want what is best for the goodwill of that person, not what my will is. You know, when you're a gangster, you have philos love for your gang. You would never rat on one of your gang members because philos love is abiding in that arena, right? But if you're operating by agape love as a gangster, your friend goes and robs the liquor store, you pick up the phone, you call the cops and say, my friend is the one who robbed the liquor store. Why would you do that? because it would be beneficial for him to be caught, confronted, pay the price, face what his life is doing, and hopefully turn around. Now, I got to tell you, when you operate by agape love in this world, you don't have many friends because they don't like it. They want you to love them with the feeling. They want you to be a bro. They want you to have that camaraderie. But the agape love says, look it, you don't understand what motivates me. It's him. His love is not this other stuff. It's good, this stuff, because we're in a world of it. Jesus understood phileo love, but he understood storge love. He understood all the forms of love. But agape love is why it's separate from these other forms. So we can see in this point that agape love will always reign over other forms of love, though as stated, philos love borders it. So does Storge love. So in the Philo, Storge, Fellows, Eros, love, we have and we feel things. We definitely feel things there. And the truest love, we can actually choose for another. We choose in our minds, this is why I say it's intellectual, we choose to make a decision that is for the betterment of that person and it is not to the detriment of them or their life or to God or his law or your life or anybody else. It is selfless, right? Agape love is always concerned with the well-being of everyone involved and never the self. This is why selflessness is intrinsic to being a Christian. You die to your own will. It's a willful choice to live to his will. That is love. We make the choice, right? So that's the fifth point, which I've kind of already talked about. Agape love is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. And this is so important, especially for many women that I've counseled with, because they'll say, I went to the store and this woman cut in front of the line and I was so mad at her. And she turned around and said, hope it's okay. And I said, you're fine. It's okay. 
in my heart they come home and my wife says, I just wanted to scream at her, but I chose to, to forgive her and let her go. It's the choice. It's not the feeling that matters in the Christian love because there's a sacrifice there. We think we have mistakenly taught agape love for Christians to be able to just be like, it's okay, I love you. You know, you killed my child, I love you. You hit me with your car, I love you. It's just this and that. That is not it. It's only present in the face of opposition. It, agape love is only present when someone deserves something different. Agape love is only present when you would uh, naturally do something different than what's going on. If you're doing what, was, what you agree with, that's brotherly love, that's storge love, that's eros love, that's I want tacos love. But when someone offends you, and you choose to willfully forgive them, you willfully choose to turn the other cheek, you willfully choose to give them a soft answer to their harsh reply, you are then in harmony with God because you're choosing to do it his way over your own. In the absence of opposition, agape love does not exist. Now I know that's a radical concept and some of you are, what? Let me put it to you this way. God loves us. Are we living, walking, breathing examples against who he is? We are. We sin daily. We sin in our mind. We sin in our hearts. We sin with our hands. He is love. In opposition to what we are, he loves us. He doesn't bless us because we're so good. He blesses us because he is agape love. Even though if we really look at yourself under a microscope, we are not pleasing to him in the things that we do and say. So I'm just using God as the example. He always is love, but he's always showing forth this love. He lets the rain shine on the, I mean, lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust because he is this love. So that sixth point is this love, agape love, does not exist when you're happy with everybody. Agape love isn't there when the family's just, everyone's getting along. You love them and, you know, the kids are behaving, the husband's in line, the wife's in line, and we're just all having a great time. And just say, I just love you guys all so much. You're just saying, I love you because you've made my life easier. This is a fun time. That's what you're saying. God love comes in when the kid is a brat and you want to wring his neck, or you want to say, I don't want anything to do with you ever again, but you forgive him. Agape love comes in when someone's testing your metal and you return it with what Jesus would do. If we can get that right as Christians, we'll begin to understand and let go of a lot of the guilt people have that says my heart just isn't in it to do that with this person. And when someone says that, I say, even better that you chose to show them love. If you agreed with the person and you showed them love, I mean, that's how you were made. That's your biology. Someone bumps into you with their card at the grocery store and you're just like, oh, it's okay, man. That's just how you are. You don't have any animus toward them. You're fine. You know, that's who you are. There's no reward for that, you know? 
But if you're not made that way, and someone bumps into you with a cart, and you're like, mofo, you're going down, you know, in your mind. But you say, it's all right. It's okay. That was a, it's an accident. I'm sorry. You know, let's go on. You're choosing to love like Christ loved. See the difference? Got to make that choice. And that is where the reward is in God's eyes, that this person has a justification to not love. But just like Jesus has every justification to call down 10,000 angels to wipe out the Roman legions and all the Jews. But he says, no, I'm not gonna. Just like God has the justification to wipe out the world at any time. You know, look around. But he doesn't because he's love. And in that love, he's reaching out to others. So I suggest, as I mentioned, that it's almost entirely, and this is paradoxical, intellectual. That's why I had Carl, uh, I can't think of his last name. I was going to call him my mentor. <laughs> At the School of Ministry, he says, all the battles are in the mind. Every battle we have is in the mind. That's why the word washes our mind, renews our minds, mind being representative of heart, will, and emotion. That it's in this mind that this is why I say it's intellectual, but it's fortified by compassion and mercy and goodness and light. So having said this, agape love is often misunderstood especially in this world. And for this reason, amidst all the ways people use love and agape and God's love today, Paul takes the time to, to tell us what it really looks like. That's the beautiful thing of chapter 13. He tells us using agape what it looks like. And you can take that and you can say when someone else says, I'm just loving you, I'm just showing you love. You can look at how he describes it and say, you are. Or you can say, no, you're not. I feel like I have to rebuke you and tell you that you're going to hell forever because the Spirit is upon me to do that. And I have to rebuke you strongly and condemn you. Okay, what does Paul say about love in 13? No, that's not there. That's not there. Can you teach somebody about, about punishment? Can you teach somebody about being astray? Sure. But it's got to be couched in the way the Bible describes love. You see, we think we take all these other factors that aren't associated with agape love and we use them to our advantage and we say, I'm being loving, you know, but they aren't in that description that Paul gives. Go up to North Temple right now at General Conference, Mormon General Conference. There's people with megaphones screaming, you know, you're children of the devil. There's people saying also, and they justify it by the written text. When Paul right here is telling us, look at, this is what the love looks like. So if you ever get lost in that, look at Ephesians chapter five or Galatians chapter five, or look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and it tells you what love looks like. All right? So... What parent would not want to bless their children? Any normal parent. What person doesn't want to help their friend, their best friend, their good friend? Who wouldn't desire chocolate cake or, or, or doesn't love erotic love, doesn't like erotic love? Those are natural, but they're all sort of tied to self-interest, even though they can be tied to the benefit of others. And so they are when our children are rude, that we exercise what Paul describes here. When our neighbor is unkind, 
we apply what Paul describes here. When we have been taken advantage of, we apply what Paul describes here. Since we're on this point, we might admit that without God in us, no one, this is a point I agree with, without God working in us, no one will really live by self, truly selfless love. We might have elements of it, but no one will really go by that. It is God, because he loved us first, that teaches us to love. In other words, when we are left to the devices of our own types of love, even though they're good, they will fail, even parent to child. They will fail. Um, in extreme cases, parent to child can, can fail, and you just can't believe it, but it does, it does happen. But the love of God never fails. Paul's going to say that. It never, ever fails. It will not fail. God is love. God does not fail. God will not fail in his love. And that is why I stand on total reconciliation. He will not fail. Love will win. He will not fail. And he will get everybody by his love. Now, I don't know how long that takes or what it means, but his love will win because Jesus has had the victory. So <coughs> Eros' love certainly fails. It erodes. Telos desire, I can only eat so many chocolate cakes before I don't want any more, you know. Uh, so on the board, the list is, uh, and I'm just going to write them out. Let me see if I have them really quickly so that we have something to go by. This is what I suggest, agape, these are the six principles I just mentioned to you, so you can see them. It, it begins with and always includes goodwill. Okay? And number two, does not ever serve the self. Number three, it's an act of the will. This one is hard for people. They want Jesus to step in and take over their will. And uh, I would suggest that Jesus steps in and says, this is what I want you to do. You need now to let your will conform to mine. And there is a relinquishing going on there, not an overpowering, like a demonic possession of some sort. Number four, it's an action. It's a verb. Number five, it is not a feeling. I know that's hard for some people, but if you think about it, you'll understand it. And then finally, it is always expressed in the face of opposition. So being armed with these six things, to, they'll help us as we go through our study here uh, in uh, chapter uh, 13 and what he's going to say. So let's read through chapter 13 now. Let the Spirit guide. These are the words that are important, not mine. And consider all we've said relative to what Paul is calling the more excellent way. Ready? You've heard it many times. Though I speak with the tongue of angels and of men and have not charity, I am a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. 
And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Now I want to stop right here and make that clarification in the King James. They chose to use the word charity here. And uh, in our day and age, it's the worst choice, it's not the worst, but it's a bad choice because we automatically think, what do you think of when you think of charity, a charitable organization? You think of goodwill. You think of Deseret Industries, giving something, right? Right? Uh, He just says in one of the passages, though I give all my goods to feed the poor and have not charity, we can see that what he's talking about is not the giving of things. Right here in the text, charity is a lousy word. So from now on, I'm replacing it with God's love. God's love. Not just love the way other translations do it, because that gets all mixed up in our world. Love, and that we can just kind of wander off and think it's a feeling and think that we're loving. Remember what I proposed as the six rules. So God's love, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not God's love, it profits me nothing. God's love suffers long and is kind. God's love envies not. God's love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseeming, speaks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God's love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they will fail. Whether there be tongues, they will cease. Whether there be knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, God's love, these three. But the greatest of these is God's love. Okay, 13 verses. Radical, radical verses. After last week's message of God writing his laws upon the hearts and minds of people in the New Testament age, this message is so apropos because it allows each of us to clearly understand how and what this love looks like. Uh, Because his laws are to love. Upon his love, that hangs the law and the prophets. So remember what Paul said, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And if you really look at some terms in here, they're almost synonymous. They're completely interchangeable. Uh, God's spirit, God's love, God's word, eternal life. They're all interchangeable. They're all almost the same, totally related. And I say that because when we are expressing God's love, we are living and we are full of the Spirit. 
When we are full of the Spirit, we are alive and we express God's love. When we are truly alive, we are full of the Spirit and therefore loving as God loves. So as we said, this chapter is a continuation of Paul saying, look in chapter 12, there's all sorts of spiritual gifts and endowments that the church, apostolic church has in place. And uh, the Holy Spirit has given Christians for the edification of the church bride at that time. And maybe today too within the body. But at the end of the chapter, he says that while it's lawful for them to desire, covet all these gifts in an erstwhile way, um, uh, he says there's a more excellent way. Let's just leave all that stuff where it is. There's a more excellent way. So much more valuable than anything else. So much so that if a person possessed all the other spiritual gifts, but lacks, lacks choosing to love as God loves, but lacks choosing to love as God loves, not feeling it, then nothing they do in terms of their spiritual gifts matter, listen, to God. To God. Do they matter in the body? Do they matter in the church? Sure. Sure. They matter. They help. They serve. They feed. That's why what we're facing with here is two subjects. One subject is what do the gifts or what do these other things do within the world in the world? And then what are you, what is your position before God? Those are two things that are being described here. You can have gifts where you can speak in every tongue in the world. You can have all prophecy. You can have all knowledge. You can have all faith. You can move mountains. But what are you to God? That's what he's saying throughout this thing. And he uses himself, I, here. I, though I, though I, all through it. He's making a comparison. In the church, you can do all sorts of great things. But what are you to God if you don't have love? You are nothing. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. And it doesn't mean that you aren't of value to him. You just are, you're an empty vessel. You are a fruitless branch. You are nothing as a Christian because Christians bear the fruit of love. And they choose to love, you see? So while you can have every spiritual gift imaginable, that will benefit the world. If you lack in this agape love, God's going to be like, you, you, you missed the whole point. The whole point. This is so important because right here, Paul lays out in no uncertain terms the import of choosing to love with God's love. I would suggest that there's some really good reasons for this. Really quickly, they might include the fact that God is love. So obviously preeminent in every characteristic of his children will be love, agape love. He is love, his children will be love, right? Uh, scripture doesn't say God is tongues. It doesn't say God is healing. It doesn't say God is knowledge. It doesn't say God is any of those things. It says God is this love that we're talking about. And therefore, the preeminence of God's love in those who are his cannot be overstated. And I know people think I talk about love too much. We, we, we had an event here once and one of Mallory's songs came up and it was about love. And one of the people here who was in conflict said, love, 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 love. They sat there in a chair and did that. And 
you get accused or you talk about love, this love. I'm going to tell you, it's more important than anything else for a Christian to have. Anything else. Faith, throw it away. What? Faith? Yes. Throw it away. If you're someone who chooses to love in these ways, it blows faith away. I don't know that you can, but if you have it, amazing. I believe faith lends to love, but Paul is the one who says it, not me. You have all faith, you can move mountains. You've got nothing. You don't have this love. I would suggest that based on what Paul says in this chapter, that all of the gifts of the Spirit that Paul has mentioned and will mention are temporary. They're temporary. And that includes faith. We are not going to live by faith when you die. You're going to see, clearly, not through a glass any longer. You're not going to live by hope anymore when you die. You will live in love. So let me tell you something. You want to harvest from the branches of the fruits of this, of this spiritual life? Harvest from the tree of love. Eat from the tree of love and love in the way that this is talked about. And you know what? People don't like to hear it because it makes them uncomfortable because it's so damn hard to do sometimes. To willfully choose to love others who don't deserve it. That's the Christian call. Who don't deserve it. Again, if they deserved it, we'd love them. That's not Christianity. If they deserved it, we would love them. Johnny cleaned his room. I love you so much, Johnny. No, Johnny, you just did what I wanted you to do. That makes me, self-interest, feel great. Johnny doesn't clean his room. With the principles that Paul mentions here, long-suffering, never fails, temperance, we apply those things to Johnny, and that brings him around, because love never fails. You see, I would also suggest that his love overcomes all things, all things. At the end of the age, when we die, at the end of your life, you go to heaven. If we follow what Revelation says, there's a new Jerusalem there. It's spiritual. Jesus and God there are the light of that. There are doors in the walls, and there is an outside New Jerusalem, and that's where all the liars and reprobates are. But there are gates that are open day and night, it says, meaning every knee can come in and bow anytime it wants. I think that his love will overcome those on the outskirts. I don't know what it means in terms of their placement within the kingdom or anything like that. That's all his deal. But his love never fails. I don't think love ever can fail you. We will cut it short through our own minds and we'll justify cutting love short. We do it all the time, but it does not fail if it's implemented the way it's described in 1 Corinthians 13. It will not fail if it's implemented that way. If it's implemented through a bunch of justifications of why some of those things aren't important or necessary, it will fail because it's not agape love. So back to verse 1. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels and have not God's love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. T Paul uses tongues here so as to mean he's talking about someone who speaks in human tongues. That's the New Testament context of that, or that's the apostolic record contents of that. Every language. What a spiritual gift. Someone can speak every language of man or uh, uh, women on earth. Every culture. Swahili, Swedish, Romanian. 
yeah, whatever, pigeon. And not only that, he adds, and the tongue of angels too. So Paul is speaking of hyperbole here. He, is, he doesn't just say, so we have a guy who speaks with tongues. He says, I can speak with all tongues. He says, I, if I speak with all tongues, every language, and I can speak with the tongue of angels too, right? So we're talking about one hyperbolic description of tongues, a guy or a woman who can roam around and speak all of them based on the contents of chapter 14, which we're going to talk about. Uh, it's fairly evident that at Corinth, it's a little isthmus that divides a lot of different world countries, east from west. There was a lot of need for tongues to be present in the, in the church at Corinth because we have people who are speaking different languages. Uh, languages. And so it, it seems like perhaps there were believers there who thought this spiritual gift that they possess, uh, that it was, I can speak uh, Mandarin, is so beneficial that I am better than others. And that's why in chapter 12, he talks about the body being one and one member can't say to the other, you can't kick the others out. So definitely tongues was important. He spends an entire chapter 14 to talk about those tongues. They were very necessary in that, that in the social business world there in the church of Corinth, where the East, the Chinese, and the West, the Europeans are coming together in that port, and they're making exchange, and they're doing business and leaving. Tongues was big, but he starts off with tongues here, and he says, listen, you can speak every language possible, but if I don't have love, I I'm, I'm, I'm but, a, I'm but a, a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. He adds, and a tongue of angels, uh, and we'll have to consider what that is. Um, first of all, he's talking about heavenly angels here because he says men and angels, so he differentiates between earthly messengers, angelos, and heavenly messengers, angelos, and he's talking, I think, about heavenly angels. And because heavenly angels are considered superior to human beings and their creation in every way that's applicable, meaning that heavenly angels are superior in their strength, in their power, in their, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that heavenly angels speak better than we do too. And uh, so uh, some people think he's talking about praying in tongues, which is a practice where people uh, let themselves go and they just kind of, they murmur by the spirit and it helps them. They think that that's what Paul is talking about. I'm not convinced. I personally think that the tongue of angels is uh, superior in eloquence in power and in clarity. And I think he's saying you can speak with the tongue of angels too, right? And if you don't have God's love, you're a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. These two illustrations Paul uses, um, they aren't really what you think. When I think of sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, I'm thinking of wind chimes as the tinkling cymbal and I'm thinking of sounding brass as, I don't know, a gong against a big gong show type brass thing. But sounding brass in all probability would be a trumpet or a brass copper, whatever they use, piece. And a sounding brass is just like this. It's loud, but it's not distinct. It doesn't have any real purpose except to call to go to warfare. And so, you know, that's what you would be like. That's all you can do. You can scream and you can alert people, but you don't really, dis you can't have distinction here. And the thing, tinkling symbols is alalazan, and it's war cry. It means a war cry. And so he's saying, if you have the gift of tongues to articulate all these various languages from all over the world, including that of heavenly angels, you're nothing but a big foghorn and a big war cry. You don't do anything but initially do this one thing, right? So just imagine someone who's gifted with the spiritual gift of tongues who stands up in here and just blasts out like a trumpet. We're just going to be like, don't get it. 
you know, or just yells out the war cry. So that is the super abundant gift of tongues would amount to if it was associated with a person who does not love. Annoying, not worthless. It does have a sound, but the end result would be spiritual worthlessness to the, to the person who possesses it. In verse 2, Paul addresses the gift of prophecy, which is enhanced by the gift of discernment, mysteries, and knowledge, and then faith. And he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy, and he adds to that gift, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. That's what he says the gift of prophecy is. He couches in, in that. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, Wasatch Mountain's gone by my faith, and have not God's love, I am nothing. Now we see the difference. You have prophecy, you, have, you understand all mysteries, you understand all knowledge. I mean, that is a powerful gift. And you have, you have uh, all faith, you can move mountains. That's the benefit to the body. That's the benefit to the earth. You can do it all. But if you don't have love, Paul says, I would be nothing. Zero. That means absolutely nothing. In the first verse, Paul says that if he had superabundant gift of tongues without love, he becomes as a sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. In verse 2, he says that the gift of prophecy enhanced by understanding every mystery, all tongues, and then all faith, I am nothing. Don't believe it? Then, then be somebody who has a superabundant spiritual gift and use it because obviously it's not tied. You don't have to be a loving Christian to have a gift. You know, that's, that's right there. Though I have, but don't have, Paul says. So I could have the gift of teaching. That is a spiritual gift I have, teaching. Uh, gifted to me. Not, I didn't develop it. It was gifted to me. I have it. But if I walk away from this platform and I am an ass to people and I choose to not love people who bug me and who deserve ill treatment in this world, when I die, I guarantee you I will be nothing in the kingdom of God to him, as far as a child. Just take it that seriously. Who cares what we are or do here if we can't embody the principle of Christianity, which is agape, a love? You have to make that the horse that draws the cart. You have to have that in line before you have this in line. It's my opinion that that's why we have stellar stars of the faith who in this world are able to do unbelievable things. But you talk to their kids or you talk to their wives or you talk to some congregants and they're just like, boy, he's got a great ministry or she's got a great ministry. Love the way she preaches, but I met her. I met her and, and, and oh, I talked with her. You should talk to their kids who aren't even of the faith anymore. There's the difference. You can have the stuff here but if you don't have the stuff there, man, you are just blowing it. And that's what, I think God uses people to do whatever he's gifted them with. Go ahead. But boy, you personally, brother, sister, you are missing the mark. And Paul's pointing that out. So here in verse two, he says that he has the gift of prophecy, which is enhanced by understanding all mysteries and knowledge has nothing. Uh, because Paul is speaking of spiritual gifts here without love, I am of the opinion that when he says he, 
would be nothing. He means that he or you or I would be empty vessels, would be fruitless branches, would be waterless wells. We're not perfect here at campus. We fail. But this is why the programs have never mattered to me. We can be on, uh, we, uh, see if, is that the wind? We could be on a program where people are anticipating to watch a debate or something, and someone makes a mistake in the back and unplugs the computer and they all go south and we're late. Just laugh. Everyone's getting mad. Who cares? Whatever. It's never about the program. It's never about anything but love. Everything you do has to be about that. If you put the other stuff first, you got to get the show off. You got to get the tech, tech, technicalities right. You got to make sure that product's out. Man, if you don't get it out there, you're in trouble. Then you're missing, you're missing the mark, man. You're missing it. And so a ministry has to be about that too. You got to be, whatever happens, it's okay. We don't need this regimented system so that everything functions right. That's of this world. But read what Paul says about love and we start to understand what is of that world, all right? So lest we forget, Paul establishes in this teaching that he was a full possessor of extreme spiritual gifts, of gifts that would greatly possess, um, greatly uh, benefit the kingdom of God. Is that possible? Ask yourself that question. Is it possible for someone to be super abundantly blessed to the point that they contribute mightily to the growing of the kingdom, to millions of people coming to the faith, and, uh, and, but they themselves are nothing before God in terms of their own fruit? Yeah, because if love's not there, yes, that's what he is saying, apparently so. And I think it's vital to understand that Paul is speaking of these two separate things here. They are mutually exclusive because you're gifted in one way does not mean that you possess love in the other. This one is for you, between you and God. And that's the one you want to put ahead of everything else. This one is for the body. And just understand that. So based on this alone, we can see why we should never be uh, a respecter of persons. This fits right in where, where James says, don't be a respecter of persons. Don't care what other people do in terms of all that really look to the person and their love and love them. Don't respect them for these other things. This is a principle mentioned in Matthew 9, 11. It says there, when the Pharisees saw it, Jesus was eating with a sinner. And they said unto his disciples, why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, they that are holding need out a physician, but they that are sick. And he tells them this, go ye and learn what that means. Uh, and he says this, quotes Old Testament scripture, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He tells them, go learn what that means. That God says, I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not call, come to call the uh, righteous, but the sinners to repentance. That recitation of the Lord, go and, and, and learn, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, is Jesus pulling from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Okay? Sacrifice, burnt offerings, Old Testament. That's what Paul is equating to over here. God says, I want mercy. I want a knowledge of God from my people over here. You see the difference? You can't come to him and do all this stuff. 
You got to come to him with this stuff. That's what he wants. This is the after effect. And it's akin to Paul, uh, the point he's making, who cares what your spiritual gifts are if you don't possess this mercy, this love, this compassion, this choice to love people, as the Christian command says. God can make a monkey speak every language on earth. He could take a gorilla up at the Hogel Zoo and have him speak every dialect clearly. Big deal. But I don't believe God can make a human being love another person. I don't think he can make us do it. He made us in his image. We have a will. And I don't think he can zap us and we're possessed and we just love. I don't think it's possible because I believe freedom is very important to God. And so I think he says, I mean, I think he could, but I don't think he would because he's good. And so he, he leaves it to us. I can't make you love someone else. You have to do it. And that's why it's of the will. You have to choose to love. That's on you. And that's why it is so valuable when we do it, right? So another approach that, if you go to 1 Samuel, and I'm going to read it because it's worth it, a similar tale takes place between the prophet Samuel, King Saul, and God's command. He tells King Saul, go out and wipe out the Amalek and his people. I mean, wipe them out. There's a whole type and picture for that. I'm not going to get into why. I'm going to read it to you because the principle is right here with what Paul is saying. Samuel said to King Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee king over the people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord, King Saul. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait in him in the way and came up from Egypt. Now, King Saul, go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. Listen but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Boy, the critics of Christianity love this stuff. They don't get the context. They don't get what Amalek and his people were like. They don't get any of that. They just jump on that. God says, go and slay him. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them and tell them 2,400 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, go depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness unto the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed out from the Amaleks, Amalekites, excuse me. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse they utterly destroyed. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel the prophet, saying, It repenteth me, another word we'd have to talk about for a while in context to understand what he meant, that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and has gone about, and passed on, and is now gone to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. 
And Samuel said, What meaneth in this the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over them. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight them against until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but did fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. We did it for a good reason. We had a reason. Our, our tongues that were speaking in Corinth were important for us to do this. And we had to lift ourselves up in the speaking of our tongues. We had to do that. And so we had to treat people with non-love. It was important to the cause. We just had to put the command to love in the way you want uh, behind what our spiritual gift is. We just had to because we knew better. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does, does he love your strategy, Saul, for keeping back the good sheep and stuff more than he loves the fact that you will do what he tells you to do? And he says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken better than the fat of rams. Paul is telling the church bride that over and above all things, they have a commandment that was given by the Lord, Savior, King, God over us. His commandment, love. It doesn't matter anything else in your life. Nothing matters compared to that commandment. Don't justify the sacrifices that you've made. Don't pay 20% in tithes and think you're justified in calling your next door neighbor a name. Don't think that you can serve in the church and you can treat a woman badly with gossip. Don't think you can ever go against the rules of love that are laid out here in 1 Corinthians 13 and justify yourself in that kingdom where God dwells in pure love. Now, this is not to beat you up. This is to encourage you and to show you the import of this position. It's more important than anything else. It would be better if this church was empty and all of you decided, I'm not gonna go to church anymore. I'm just going to really love other people. If you made that decision, I would applaud you because that's the goal. And if you followed it, great. Knowledge, we're getting knowledge out our ears. BFD, doesn't mean anything. Knowledge, 
all mysteries. I can understand science. I can understand every mystery. I have all knowledge. I can quote the scripture backward and forward and move people around with that and do this, but I don't have love. I, Paul says, am nothing. You want to be something to God. And that something comes by bearing the fruit of love you choose to assign to people who don't deserve it. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and with this gift I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have faith that I can move mountains and have not godly love, I am nothing. The prophetic office that Paul mentions here with the apostles and the teachers in chapter 12, they had the ability to do a lot. Those are the spiritual gifts. Here Paul is speaking exuberantly of appointing of his appointment to the office of a, an apostle. He's saying, I have all these gifts. That's why he's speaking of the I in chapter 13. Though I, though I, though I, because he possessed them. But if I have all of them and I don't have this, this love, I'm in trouble. Really, really powerful point. It doesn't get more radical in terms of comparisons. It doesn't get more radical than this. It goes hand in hand with the phrase that Jesus uttered, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What does it profit? Jesus is talking about spiritual profit. He's talking about the fruit that profits you in the place of God. What does it profit if you gain the whole world, the whole world, and you lose your soul? His comparison to the eternality of the soul means there's a zero comparison. Take the whole world. Don't lose your soul, right? Hopefully these professions of Paul are helping me and you to tune in and learn to love. That is the reason to learn to love. It's the currency of heaven. It's the person of God himself. It's the environment of eternities. It's the only thing that overcome, overcomes all other things. It's the only thing that never fails. It's the only thing that is eternal. And for this reason, it is entirely optional if someone wants to do it or not. That's the beauty of it and the pain of it. Godly love is so important, so vital, so eternal, so much that even Paul says faith means nothing. Faith. Holy cow. Can you believe that faith? So much faith that Paul says you could move a mountain. It means I am nothing if I have the faith to move mountains, but I don't have love. And we're going to talk more about that. We're going to move out from that point uh, in part two of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Comments, questions? Great. Whoa. Boy. Our Vanna White is going to be busy today. Please say your name. First name. Lisa. Hi, my name is Lisa. Um, you know, Sean, this is, was so really interesting. I have to tell you, last week when you did that really great um, sermon on, on agape, you know, it did. It brought a lot of questions up. It's like, how am I going to love someone? How do I learn to love someone? Especially in my situation that you know about. Um, and one of the gentlemen here when I was leaving um, last week said to me, you know, don't see it as like a burden. You know, don't see it like you have to learn oh. to love someone. He goes, see it as you get to love someone. I love that. And that just hit me so deeply because 
I'm trying to get through this situation that I am in to to learn to not to learn to but to get to love that person who wow. wronged me or hurt me or whatever I get to love them and it was so beautiful how I said it but it just it did it brought up a lot of stuff for me it's like how do I do this what how am I going how do I get to love somebody and you you put it out Praise so God. nicely so I love how you how you've done this I'm going to probably uh, go home later and redo this <laughs> sermon again <laughs> on, online so it really helps. So thank you so much, Thank Sean. you, Lisa. Great comment. Whoever said that to her, praise God. Yeah. This is David. David, a Hebrew brother. Uh, a couple of things. One of them is uh, we're, I think that we have a better ability to do the agape love when we are able to step out of our own situation and realize how ridiculous some of the situations or that we put ourselves in be, are. And God is able to do that. He can see the big picture. Yeah. We are so involved in the story, in our story, that we often are a unable to see our own yeah. uh, picture. So a as an example of that is the feud of the Hatfields and McCoys. Oh. After generations, they had no idea why they were fighting. <laughs> So uh, the next uh, point, or uh, kind of the question, uh, the number two up there that does not ever sell, uh, serve the self, yeah. and the last line of um, verse three, can you articulate the difference there? Next week. Okay. Uh, question. That's part of our next week. Okay. I had one more and I can't think of it. Comes back, raise your hand. Okay. Always great insights, Dave. Thanks. Hi, I'm Kathy. Um, I just wanted to give an experience that I had about 10 years ago. And I'm not really good with words and things, but um, I was awakened at 3 in the morning. I was a CNA, and I took care of my little lady. I, I did uh, 524s and 112. Um, and I was awakened at 3 in the morning. And um, I, was, I was talked to. I was called by name, and I was talked to. And I was told, Kathy, God is love, and he who dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. I never knew that scripture existed, but that's what I was told. Mm. And, it, and I was told there's two great commandments, love God with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. How's that, Kathy? To love yourself the way you love God and to love your neighbor the way you love God. And it said because if you say that you love God but hate your brother you're a liar and the truth is not in you why Kathy because I am in your brother and I I asked I said well what are what am I supposed to do then and he said yours is to love and to love and to love and I don't know why I was told three times that but and then he said um it's all about love that's all it's ever been about. That's all it ever will be about. Mm. 
and I was very staunch Mormon at that time, but that's what started my journey out of that um, into relying on God and Jesus Christ. But it was really beautiful to me because I was, I know people say, oh, well, you're hearing voices, you're kind of, kind of a nutcase. <laughs> Sorry, I have my glasses on because my eyes are so bad, but um, I just think it is about love. And, but it's very difficult, especially when I'm on the freeway. <laughs> I have a real struggle with that, and I'm constantly, you know, there you go, you blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then I have to say, forgive me, Father, I am so sorry. They're probably just wrapped up in their own thoughts and their own world, and they wouldn't mean to really hurt me. That's it seems like all I do on the freeway is pray. <laughs> So when I'm in front of you on the freeway, you're hating me. When I'm behind you on the freeway, I'm hating you. So you're just <laughs> praying away while I'm trying to drive. It's <laughs> about how it goes. So anyway. the love, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> ever get mad at somebody, Bob, we're going to the next speaker. Ever get mad at somebody and you look at them and they're a believer or there's something you know? <laughs> you're just like, oh boy. Hi, Sean. It's Militia. I'm wondering if there are any examples after this was given by Paul of people living that in the scriptures, or if it's not there, if maybe that's a sign to us that it's so individual that you just have to figure it out individually. We don't have somebody to look up to that did all these things. Mm. It wasn't an apostle. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know of many like particular stories. We could probably find a few, but yeah, it's a really good point. There's not many after that, so it is quite subjective. To the back, our visitor who's from Florida. Hi, I'm Robin. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say that uh, to the lady in the front, don't worry about what people say. The Almighty will talk to you. So the Bible tells us that. Um, second, I have, uh, I have a question, Sean. Yes. The question is this. Um, who has access to agapeo? Uh, I believe all of us have access. All humans? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was uh, doing a study in uh, Revelation, and you know where it has the uh, Church of Ephesus, mm -hmm. and um, the thing that went wrong with Ephesus was they lost their first love. Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny uh, that... Um, when I was reading the Church of Ephesus and all about them, mm -hmm. uh, Baptists came to my mind. And, um, and being from the North, um, I'd never heard of a Baptist before. Uh, so when I was doing that study, I was up in the North mm. um, the first time. The second time I did it, I was down in the South and I had met Baptists. And, and so it, it made me think of the Baptists and I say that because um, the Baptists seem to be uh, real holy or whatever. And, uh, but the thing is that whenever I went into a Baptist church, there was no love. Mm -hmm. there, it was just, I mean, they'd come over and greet you and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but it wasn't love. And so, um, so I had uh, said to... Um, a Baptist person, uh, I said, 
I said to them, and, and I'm talking about, you know, I'm going along with what you're talking about, um, 1 Corinthians 13, and the comparison if you do this and no love. Mm -hmm. Well, I said to um, this Baptist, I said, um, why do you do what you do? You know, because they were, they were part of a Baptist church, and they would do all these Baptist things and things for the church and all this stuff. And, you know, he's, they were well known. And I said, I said, why do you do those things? And they said, well, it's because I was told to. I said, well, don't you do it for love? Because you love, you know, because you have agape. Oh, I, I don't know about that. So what I learned in comparing that to 1 Corinthians 13 mm -hmm. is that it seems to be that Paul is saying um, you can do anything. You can be an atheist and, and you can feed the poor as an atheist mm -hmm. and that's great mm -hmm. in the world's eyes mm -hmm. but that atheist can't have agape mm -hmm. i don't believe that mm. so we'll disagree on that one but but anyway the point is that that's what i see him saying mm -hmm. in first corinthians is that you can do all these things like that baptist do all these things and it's useless because you're not doing it because you have the agape Great point. of the Almighty. Thank you so much, Robin. Mm -hmm. And from our brother. Uh, no, we need you on. We, this is good for everybody. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just getting out for me. Uh, meaning and purpose. And I don't know if that's, it happened and it's listed that way for a reason. I was always trying to be first, trying to be the winner, not just trying to be on the winning team. Now I realize I am second. I am that second kind of love, not that first one. Yes, I have that first one because I have him. But I, here on this earth, am second for that kind of love. Praise God, brother. Glad you shared it. Yeah. And his name is Blake. And another comment from a young man. A young man. Yeah, I'm Richard. This will be really quick. Just uh, three things that jumped out at me when you were talking about the tinkling cymbal and sounding brass. Um, it just, those things, you know, the horn, the bullhorn, everything, it calls attention to itself. And I just thought that was really, Ooh. you know, when the gifts, and that's why it's not valid. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing, talking about agape love, um, I was thinking, you know, when, that's why God puts us through or lets us remain in difficult situations and things that we don't understand. We think, why don't he just make it easy for me and why can't I just get this? And it's because he loves us and sees a higher purpose where sometimes I think we just need to remind ourselves that, that maybe we're in the difficult times because he loves us and we're supposed to be growing and learning. And then the other thing, and you're mentioning agape love and how you know, in a gang, you know, a gang situation or any other situation about maybe it's agape love to turn our loved ones into the justice system. I totally disagree with that because <laughs> I don't. After what you just experienced, I understand that. Yeah, and I don't believe in that the justice system has any agape, any any godlike love, and it's not about 
love. It's not about kindness. It's just it's more of a mosaic, you know, law. So I just wanted to throw that out in case anyone's considering turning their loved ones into the law. Spending five years in prison might be the worst thing that could happen to someone spiritually. Yeah, so. It was an example. Right. So right. point taken. Yeah. Thanks. Very good. You guys, your, your comments are really important and they're, they're really valid because we learn from each other. Just like, uh, just like when Lisa was walking out and someone said to her, you know, it's an opportunity. It's, you get to love. I mean, that is just remarkable. And that's why all of us are, you know, important in how we fellowship and love and friendship. Really, really grateful to be part of today because uh, God was really with this message, I think, because that's what he's about. And I hope we can walk away and take something with us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we uh, wrap up our time together. We love you. We want to love you better. We have the will. We just don't have the means sometimes. And we want to love each other better. And again, the same issue. And so we pray that we'll know how to uh, choose to love in the way that it's described here in, in 1 Corinthians 13. And to, be, and to have your wisdom, uh, like Richard pointed out. We just don't want to turn everybody in. It's, it's do the principles of love apply. And so in that vein, we, uh, you tell us to pray for people, and that is a form of love. And that's what we are doing. We are taking just a few minutes of our lives, and we are offering up our prayers on their behalf. It's a sacrifice of the lips for others. And so we do this uh, as a form of love, and that's, that's uh, behind this. And so we pray for Jeff Jenks for healing of his platelets. Our little friend Gracie, uh, back, I guess, with cancer, um, full force and fighting it. And uh, so we just pray for her and we pray for her healing and we pray for her family. We pray for uh, this little girl. We pray for Mary, cancer and healing and strength. Robert, continued healing from cancer. And uh, we pray for uh, families and for guidance. I want to pray for Lisa, who mentioned the burden that she's under. And we're all under different burdens, Lord, but hers is specific and difficult. And I just pray that you will equip her with that ability to have that opportunity where she can love, she can choose to love. And you, uh, she is your daughter, and uh, that I believe. And so I just pray you will equip her and equip all your daughters and all your sons here. I pray for my brother Blake, uh, who has had a, a, a renewed revelation in his life and in his heart for you and to live by love. And I pray that you will equip him uh, fully, where he can set aside anything that beset him in the past, and he can walk uh, with you as his primary guide and not the things of the world. And I pray for myself and all the rest of us here, sound of my voice, watching the archives, tuning in, that you'll help us to live by this principle primarily over everything else. And uh, we trust you in this, Lord, and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.